If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. February is LGBT plus history month in the UK. And for today's episode, we've assembled a panel of experts, Matt Cook, Channing Gerard-Joseph, Jen Mannion and Angela Steidella, to discuss the key moments and overlooked figures in LGBTQ history around the world. Posing the questions was our deputy editor, Matt Elton. Please be aware that the conversation features some terminology that some listeners might find offensive. Yes, so my name's Matt Cook, um, and I'm a professor of modern history at Birkbeck College, University of London. Hello, my name is Channing Gerard-Joseph. I teach journalism at the University of Southern California. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Mannion. I'm an associate professor of history at Amherst College. Hi, my name is Angela Steidle. I'm a German freelance writer, and I have published several books on LGBT people in German. 
So the first question really, and what usually happens is I ask the first question, then no one says anything. So don't panic if that happens, that's okay. Uh, The first question really is, over the past few decades, popular history has increasingly embraced LGBTQ narratives and stories. Do you think it's done a fair job of telling those stories? Or do you think there's moments or episodes that get overlooked? It's a really interesting question, because I think what what I say is that um, I think what we've seen is the development of really important um, narratives that have made queer lives visible. And that's been really important. I guess what I'd suggest in tandem is that um, increasingly, I think we've become aware that actually having these strands so separated out from wider histories is really problematic because I think what we what we end up doing is seeing it in a kind of silo instead of as in a kind of dance um, with other aspects of our of our past and history. Um, so we tend to see, for example, the timeline of LGBTQ history around, for example, legal change or Stonewall or these kind of big, um, clearly gay, queer LGBT moments. But in a way, you could say that the more significant moments might be, for example, the expansion of the British Empire you know, and, and the exporting of a whole series of sexual uh, norms and ideas of respectability and all sorts of other things, or the inception of sexology as a sexual science, or um, the classical revival when the, you know, the kind of ancient world got drawn into kind of a, a, a popular 18th, 19th century culture. But we tend not to see those as part of LGBTQ history in the way it's become popularly understood. Um, so I suppose, you know, I'd really celebrate the kind of upsurge in LGBT history. But I suppose my, my what I'd add to that is, is the need to kind of see it as part of kind of broader social, cultural economic change, including the emergence of LGBT history itself. You know, that is a product of kind of counterculture, counterhistory, social history movements emerging in the 60s, 70s. I agree that any history written without the LGBT community narratives is ideology and not general history. But at the same time, I would say the question is uh, quite difficult. What do we overlook? Because we are overlooking it. So how should we know? Um, For example, uh, the whole problem of lesbian visibility. Uh, There is still so much research to be done, I'm sure. But um, there is the problem where to look. Uh, Sure, European archives are open, but what about the Russian archives? What about Iranian archives, Saudi Arabian archives, and so on? So um, we still need a clue where to look. I agree that much work needs to be done. Um, And I think that when when we say, are we overlooking things, the the issue is... um, I think we're we're still very much as a field in the process of of discovering um, so many um, so many new and and potentially impactful um, aspects of of our history. I, I can only speak for um, uh, primarily speak for the American side because that's my specialization. But um, it 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 strikes me to to echo the point that Matt made um, that um, when we particularly in America, when we teach American history in schools, we're not teaching the LGBTQ aspects of, for example, the Civil War, the the World War II, Reconstruction, um, the Civil Rights Movement, right? So all of the aspects of history that we teach in schools 
should reflect the roles that LGBTQ people and movements played um, in those. And for for the time being, it's at a very incipient stage. You know, in California and some states are beginning to incorporate some of those those um, some of that new research into what's taught. But um, it's it's very much at the beginning. I think what's been really exciting in the past decade is how much our community itself, and especially LGBTQ young people, have been really interested in our history. And I see it especially coming in the trans community. People are really hungry to understand like a longer lineage of these kinds of experiences and, you know, transcestors and having some understanding about what this struggle and what a trans life was like before the modern times. And as someone said, we also saw this around Stonewall, right? Just this incredible, you know, upsurge in interest in community history and our activism. And, you know, and also I've seen it on college campuses and in queer community centers, like how many grassroots history projects there are, how excited people are about documenting our own past. Now, that doesn't mean it's translating to mainstream society or straight people or, you know, general histories that are being written. That's a whole other thing. But I do see such enthusiasm um, from within our community about documenting and learning about our histories. And that's really exciting. I completely agree. I mean, there's been a similar upsurge in the UK over the past 10, 15 years. And it's incredibly exciting that the, the, the kind of wealth and breadth of the histories that are getting explored, including, you know, in, at a community level, but also some of our national heritage institutions, you know, the National Trust is now, has been exploring its queer past and queer, and the queer threads of its, of its past. I think one of the most interesting things emerging from this is the idea that sexuality and gender have a history. In other words, that the idea of what a man and a woman are has not been the same for all time. And the idea of what um, two men loving each other and having relationships with each other or two women has meant different things at different historical moments. And I think there's an increasing kind of exploration. I mean, there's an incredible richness in exploring those shifts and changes in meaning. Do you think there's a tension between who gets to tell these kinds of stories? We talked a bit about institutions and a bit about these communities themselves. Is there some navigating that has to happen um, about who tells, who controls these narratives? Well, I can say from some of my experience with archival projects and there's incredible distrust still, you know, within the queer community about professional historians and for-profit publishers and even sometimes non-profit publishers Um, what they do with the records of our lives. And as someone who's carved out a life for themselves, trying to bridge those worlds, I've always been first and foremost an LGBTQ rights activist and then trained as a professional historian because I believe that, you know, our history is so important and that documenting queer history is a form of activism, Um, trying to just, you know, convince people, at least within my community, that there is value in having your, you know, organizational or papers held by uh, an institution that has the resources to protect 
and catalog and make them accessible. Um, when a lot of people would rather give them to a community center who, where they trust, where they have a longstanding relationship with, but our queer community centers are chronically underfunded and often don't have the resources um, to maintain and index and make available um, these sources. Such a in the U.S., a, such a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of all philanthropy dollars go to anything LGBTQ in general, and especially anything LGBTQ history. So there's just not the financial resources to support um, the interest and the passion and the the record, the, you know, the need to maintain the records. And, you know, I, I realized I took this down a different level <laughs> from the original question, um, but in, I think like a historian, so access to the archives is the first step <laughs> um, towards then, you know, figuring out who's going to write the actual story itself. But, but I completely agree. I mean, it's that it's that sense, I think, of thinking about where these histories have come from. And they absolutely came from below, from political activism in the 60s and 70s. And, and, and absolutely hand in hand, you know, the Gay Liberation Front, you know, and the, the movements that surrounded that gave birth to the historical, the, the tracking of, hist- of, 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 of lesbian and gay histories. And so, so that, that tradition and that history from below has been really important in thinking about both this strand of history as separate and also then... It's created issues, I think, in terms of how it how it engages or how it's taken up or not within the academy, within universities and so on. I think um, I would like to, you know, my research um, really um, focuses a lot on newspaper records. You know, I'm in journalism. Um, and um, when we look at newspaper records of, for example, raids on gay bars or drag balls, um, or uh, arrests of, of drag queens or cross-dressers or female impersonators in the 19th century or the early 20th century. Um, the, the people who are telling the stories of those events are primarily cisgender, straight people, primarily white people. Um, and there's a long history, there's a long uh, timeline of of the the only available or the primarily available records of those events of many of those events are told through the lens of of those cisgender straight white people um, from a certain class um, right so um, I think what's interesting in my work is sort of prim- relying on records that tell those stories through that lens but also tr- uh, but also um, using records that tell stories through that particular lens um, to find stories about LGBTQ people and people of color of the past. So there is, there's a tension that you mentioned, Matt, um, uh, and it's sort of, it's in a way built in, it's sort of baked into the process because the stories, our stories have been told through a specific lens for a very long time. It's very similar to the ways in which, um, in African American history, many of many of uh, the available stories we have slave narratives, but many of the available stories are told through the lens of the slaveholders um, rather than through the the voices of slaves. Right? Um, there's a very limited number of slave narratives available. Right? So to to find voices of enslaved people, particularly enslaved women and or enslaved queer people, is um, is a very difficult um, process. Um, so there's this tension baked in um, with the archive uh, 
structure being structured in a certain way for a very long time and to and to try and um even if we want to tell our own stories we have to do a lot of work to to um go back and find and sort of translate them for 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 ourselves and for the public i might add the german perspective of this all uh I'm sure you're familiar that the a term homosexual has been coined in Germany in the German language, although it's the Greek-Latin um, invention, in 1869 um, from an, a gay activist, Karl-Maria Kadbeni, Austrian-Hungarian, actually he was, but he wrote in German, and he was part of the first gay emancipation movement that Europe ever saw. And uh, actually... My country, Germany, is the home country of this first gay emancipation movement, which led our activists um, also to do research and start the question of homosexualities of the past and so on. And all this was completely destroyed by the Nazis, for sure, who killed them all or drove them into exile. And today, this um, story, which could make us proud, is even forgotten in Germany. And activists today look to the US and look to Britain in order to get inspired. Think of that. So activists themselves tend to forget their own history. That maybe shows how important the work is we have to do. It kind of goes back to what you were saying earlier, Angela, about sources as well. And that links to what Channing was saying, that actually... Um, It's partly about thinking about how we can access dif different voices and the voices that have kind of, you know, not 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 kind of getting too seduced by the dominant narratives and the do dom dominant voices that get told. Um, and of course, that's within LGBTQ history as well. You know, certain narratives dominate. You know, the Stonewall narrative. You know, occluding as you as you said, some of the early kind of emancipation history in, in the German context. But also, how important then the histories of nation are. And national legal systems and national battles and fights and so on have been to LGBTQ history. You know, it's not it's not a history that's separate from those things. This is probably really reductive, given the scope of this enormous uh, history we're trying to tell. Um, are there individual stories that you think have been obscured or that say something about the wider the wider narratives here? I I want to volunteer for one. So so just to jump off of something Matt was pointing out. Um, You know, the the idea that we should we should tell LGBT our our history. I like to say our history, like Jen does. Our history is part of the the larger narrative of the of the of global history. Um, um, and so, for example, in, in the United States, um, we had a civil war in the 1860s, um, and um, after the civil war, um, the um, There was lots of tension between whites and blacks. So the war was over, in many ways, over slavery. And the um, the uh, in Memphis uh, in in 1866, there was um, there was a riot um, where angry whites um, attacked um, black residents of Memphis, burning down schools and churches, um, murdering people. Um, destroying, going on a rampage. And as part of that, um, in anger over, over uh, you know, having lost the Civil War, um, a particular woman named Frances Thompson, uh, who had been an enslaved woman, um, uh, w 
was sexually assaulted. She was sexually assaulted by uh, by a gang of of white men. Um, Frances Thompson's sexual assault led to her testifying to Congress about the experience. This was a sort of a very important moment. Her testimony then led to the the sort of um, bolstering the argument for the implementation of civil rights laws um, and and um, and securing Reconstruction, which was a period of a federal intervention in the United States to to um, to um, remake the country, reconstruct the country um, in in a in a post-slavery era. That um, was a very a pivotal moment for American history. Her testimony was um, the reason why that's important. Why it's important to prayer history is that ten years later, in 1876. Um, the police uh, became very suspicious of Frances Thompson and insisted that she be strip searched. Um, and in that strip search, it was um, discovered that she had been assigned male at birth. And so Frances Thompson was subsequently um, decried as a fraud um, through the press across America. Um, and her previous testimony, which had been so important for securing civil rights for for newly emancipated Black people, um, was questioned, and um, it was it was said, well, obviously, if she's not quote really a woman, she couldn't have been sexually assaulted. So um, her testimony is false, and therefore, this whole program of of Reconstruction is is being called was called into question. Um, so. As part of the the story we tell about Reconstruction in America, um, Frances Thompson is really central to that story. Um, she is a, a queer or trans woman who is central to the story of of American history, uh, and and that that story isn't told. Um, she is a very um, an unknown figure within within American history um, thus far, and so I often like to bring her up. So that's one example. I earlier mentioned the problem of lesbian visibility, and that has to do with the fact that um, different from the legal situation uh, men faced, in most countries, uh, sex between women was not punishable. Here also Germany is um, the one exception in our penal codes, um, starting from 1532 um, with our Emperor Charles of the Holy Roman Empire of German states. We had the situation that in his new penal code introduced, um, sex among women was as punishable as sex between men, meaning they had to be burned alive. And actually, we know of, we have um, uh, court records uh, which um, witness that women actually have been executed in Germany um, for loving other women. And so I would like to recall the case of Katharina Margareta Link, who was executed in 1721 in Prussia for loving another woman. I like to call her the uh, last example of this because then the discussion of uh, enlightenment turned things out in a direction that also in the German states, um, in the penal codes, women, when conf referring to sodomy, were not mentioned any longer. 
but uh, she has seen from a distance her case is really funny because um, she used a self-made leather dildo and obviously it was very successful with other women and um, the law courts were very interested in all details. So that's uh, a great success for any researcher. I was thinking about um, the great example, the great, the great, the great additions to the to the gallery of uh, heroes and heroines. I was thinking though about how our tendency, I think, still in community history and LGBT history is to look for a kind of succession of heroes and heroines to be proud of. Um, and I was thinking what that does or how that distorts our history in a way. Um, there's a wonderful podcast by Ben Miller called Bad Gays, and it's it's all about uh, figures who we might not want not be so proud of, but still a part of a story and part of the complexity of queer of queer history. You know, some of the most appalling racists and misogynists were also queer. You know, and 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 I think we need to think about the complex the complexities of that, and that's also part. Of, of this heritage, this history that, that we're talking about. I suppose the other thing I was thinking about was, I've, I've, I've long been fascinated by this romantic socialist called Charles Ashby, who was uh, um, born in six, 1863 and died in 1942. And what I think is so interesting about him is that he was married to a woman who he called his comrade wife. Um, he was very into Walt Whitman and Edward Carpenter and the romantic socialist movement and had this incredibly intimate close relationship with his wife. They shared a diary, they raised uh, kids together, um, and he was completely open about his love and love affairs with other men, and she had lovers too. And what I love about this story is that it's a real reminder that actually cross-sex, cross-gender friendships and intimacies and solidarities have been really important in LGBTQ and queer history. Um, that, you know, those we tend to think about, we tend to focus on same-sex couples and same-sex sex when we think about LGBTQ history. But actually, the friendships and solidarities across gender lines have been really crucial in sustaining queer lives and uh, 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 across the years. Um, and so it's one of the reasons I love Charles Ashby and also the way in which it's absolutely clear in his life that his desires and his sexuality weave through his politics, weave through what he did in terms of design and architecture and, and so on. And so the way in which um, his queerness isn't separable, it's it part of a dance with politics and and, and work and and, uh, and the way he lived his, his everyday life. Um, so it's figures like that that I suppose I, I, I enjoy talking about because I think they, they suggest a, a kind of complexity when we're looking at the queer past that we, we maybe forget sometimes. This is so fun. Um, well, I've had the pleasure of, you know, researching a group of people who were described as female husbands. And, you know, one of the things that I love about female husbands is they give us a window into an experience that could be something that contemporary lesbians relate to or the contemporary trans people relate to. And it's really tempting to try to pin female husbands down into one of these categories and say, well, they were, you know, they represent our transgender past or 
you know, no, they were lesbians who only transgender so they could be with other women. Um, but what I got to experience in, you know, researching their lives in the archives for a really long time is just how, how they, their lives cannot be reduced to our simple contemporary categories. And we can benefit and, you know, learn so much with and from and about them by kind of suspending our own agenda needs of this moment and taking their lives on their own terms. And so for me, I think, you know, maybe I'll just highlight two of my favorites um, that represent different important parts of queer and trans history. One is James Howe, who lived most of their life in London uh, in the 1730s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, um, was married to their childhood friend, Mary, um, and they ran a tavern uh, in, you know, the east side and together and were undetected and known to, you know, be husband and wife. And part of why I love James Howe is they're sort of held up as this like model patriarch, which is just so weird. Um, you know, they worked hard. They were good to their wife. They gave to the needy. They were active in the church. They were, you know, a juror, you know. So it's just this learning about someone who transgender entered into a legal marriage with a woman, did broke laws in in, in that way, did something they weren't supposed to do but then was really heralded by their neighbors and community um, for the way they lived their life as a man. And they were judged in relation to the standards of laboring white manhood in London during this era. They weren't judged as like, you know, a failed woman, you know, which I just find so fascinating. They were judged against the gender category that they were living and, you know, aspiring to uphold. Um, the other person who I think a lot about, and their life was much harder, um, and they were treated much more harshly in the press and, and by other people, is Joseph Lobdell. Um, and quite a bit has been written about Joseph Lobdell. So if you're a queer history person, you are probably familiar with the case, but Part of why they're so important is they sort of, they, they're a bridge between, you know, 19th century gender, kind of what I think is some kind of chaotic um, police, religious leaders, other authorities. Like, they're still not quite really ever sure what to do with people who they find who have transgender what to make of them, how to treat them, what law did they break, did they break a law, is there a law? But when it comes to Joseph Lobdell, they are institutionalized by their brother um, and declared insane because of their gender expression and their gender identity, and they become an early subject of sexology. And so their life is, you know, written about by Dr. P.M. Wise in some early, you know, sex sexology journals, and they're declared a sexual invert. And, you know, that's really like some of the early work done by doctors in stigmatizing female masculinity, in 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 declaring people who are gender nonconforming assigned female birth sexual inverts, and therefore, you know, representative of 
true homosexuality in women. So it's this really pivotal point in our understanding of the origins of, you know, homosexuality as a category um, that a lot of those early studies were kind of mapped out on the bodies and lives of gender nonconforming and trans people who were assigned female at birth. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. There, there is really an assumption that if you're researching somebody of the past, the assumption is that the default person is going to be a cisgender heterosexual. And that if you're assuming that they're anything but a cisgender or heterosexual person, then you, you need some really, really uh, high standards of evidence to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person <laughs> is what you know in your heart based on, based on your intuition as, as, a, as a person who lives in a, in a queer body. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. I wanted to draw out something you just mentioned, which is this idea that um, it's unhelpful to try to reduce um, past experiences down to our own current understanding of things. I mean, how culturally specific is our current understanding of these lives? Um, and do we need to have a broader, more flexible view of these, of these histories? As historians, we are always children of our time and have to deal with the fact that we look to history through the lens 
of our times, of our bodies, of our contemporaries, what we have learned so far. So um, uh, trying to retell history always is a fictionalization of everything. And we are making history while studying it. Um, so it's the, the categories with which we have to work are a curse and, um, and a help. And it's, it's most important to challenge everything and ourselves while asking um, historical questions. And um, I would like to support what Jen uh, mentioned um, some minutes ago, that, for example, the female husbands might help us overcome our identities and the categories uh, with which we tend to look and try to explain historical um, people and, and the things that happened. Maybe history is telling us more about ourselves than we can explain what happened in the past. And it would be ideal if looking into history would help us reshape our maybe too narrow conceptions of sex, gender, and so on. I think that's so beautiful. And I would like to, you know, it's looking at uh, at the past, at the at the all the sorts of varied terms that were used to describe queer and, and gender nonconforming people, right? We have um, terms like um, invert, which Jen pointed out, um, terms like um, tribad and similisexualist and homosexualist and um, um, there are terms that describe, um, um, medical terms that describe sort of, um, gender nonconforming behavior or, or, or thinking such as, um, psychical hermaphrodite. Um, uh, and these are terms that, that existed, you know, and were used in early sexology. Um, and they're not terms that we just, that people tend to use for themselves today, right? Um, those are relevant in a certain time period um, for for how people were sort of, I think, struggling to categorize and understand the contours of of what gender identity and sexuality are about. Um, in the 1920s and 30s, you see lots of headlines in the black press reporting on what they term the uh, the pansy craze, um, the um, words like pansy, words like fag, words such as twilight men, dawn boys are used to describe um, people who are assigned male at birth who express um, gender um, in a variety of ways, um, um, particularly as female impersonators or as people identify self-identified as queens. Um, and they, I think, would be startled by some of our sort of prescriptions about how we think about gender. And oh, you're, yeah, um, we would they recognize themselves? I wonder. Oftentimes, if if they heard themselves described as LGBTQ, um, would they recognize themselves if they heard themselves described as um, as part of a group in this way? This group that we that we sort of in modern modern concepts, we, we have grouped lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning, intersex, asexual together. 
uh, as one thing? Uh, would they recognize themselves in that? And how would they feel about it? I wonder about that a lot. And I, and I, from, from in my work in particular, it's important for me to try and get at to the extent possible how would how would someone want to be represented today how, and how did they think of themselves at the time that they existed um, um what pronouns did they use what pronouns would they want to have used for them if they if they live if they were alive um what names would they want uh, to have used for them if they were alive so these are questions that are, that are really complicated and nobody has an answer but i think it's important um, as Jen and Angela have pointed out, to just think about <laughs> uh, it's, it's, think about some of the the questions. It's crucial to ask those questions, isn't it? Because it makes me think how how important it is to hold to both recognise the importance of some of these labels and terms in the way they were used and the way people claimed them or the way they were applied to people, but also to hold them really lightly um, and contextually. Because it seems to me that gay in one place means something different in another. Um, you know, and also changed its meaning from its kind of real radical edge in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen seventies to a much more descriptive term by the nineteen nineties. You know, at which point queer became the radical, the the the, the term with a radical edge, um, and now queer has become a much more kind of generally used uh, frame of reference. So those so these meanings kind of shift with time, but also mean different things in different places. Um, I was thinking about some research I've been doing on Leeds in the north of England. Um, where you know in the uh, late seven yes in the seven seven late seventies and eighties you know there were women that described themselves as gay girls um, and other women that described themselves as lesbians um, and they meant very different things and yet they you could really flatten out historically and say well these were a group of these were both these were all lesbians well that's not how um, some of these women were seeing themselves because they they didn't didn't subscribe to the kind of politics that they saw. Um, lesbian activisms, uh, le- lesbian activists um, signing up to. So that it's really interesting how even on a very local level, you see different terms being used and meaning and being understood in different ways. You know, part of what complicates this question for me is the role of homophobia and transphobia, because while we are immersed in this material and care so much about uplifting you know, queer and trans pasts, and we want to do it respectfully. And, you know, as so many of you have already said, contextually and in in, in a rich way, um, there are homophobic and transphobic people who just want to silence and suppress these pasts and say, well, no, you know, if you don't, there's a burden of proof demand um, uh, in terms of evidence about queer and trans lives, and that if you can't provide the document, you know, um, then you, how dare you, you know, reference this person as a part of the queer community or queer past? You're imposing your activist agenda on history, and you know that's a really powerful destructive force um, that has kept you know, queer history marginalized and I would say out of schools in many ways, you know, for decades. And it's something that we have to fight against. So, you know, sometimes this lends itself to a bit of an insider-outsider conversation um, in terms of, you know, what's the context in which we are weighing in about how we approach this material and and what the stakes really are. Mm -hmm. And also then how we we validate and 
different forms of evidence and different ways of surmising and concluding and 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 thinking about desire. I mean, it's where I think you know the arts and culture have been so so key because often it's it's the only place where queer people have found a voice. Um, you know, there's a a wonderful archive in London called the Ruckus. Uh, archive, which is a black queer history archive. And it's full of art and poetry and photography, because actually black queer people in the UK, there was no representation, there was no voice. And you wouldn't find them in the newspaper press or the gay press or, you know, these other places where we typically might look for representation. And so, you know, actually taking the art seriously as a place where um, history is recorded voices are recorded hopes and fears and loss losses are recorded is, is is really key but but those are the kind of forms of evidence that are sometimes frowned on i think within the historical profession so it's it's about also making a persuasive argument or, or, or a case for actually looking at um looking at the past through different lenses and and in creative ways as well and taking storytelling various forms of storytelling really seriously i think When we talk about terms and the problems we have um, to label uh, uh, identities of the past, I think um, the whole discussion we are having could be so inspiring for mainstream um, society and history as well, because we should also challenge the terms woman and man, for example. You know, they seem to be so like, still like a block and everyone pretends to be knowing what is said uh, when we are talking about men and women, but actually we don't. So um, in this way, when we come back to the first question, how could our uh, researches and our narratives inspire the um, the mainstream? Um, this is actually one of the key things we are doing for them, for example. That's so beautiful. I love it. Um, and I also, <laughs> I want to, uh, there was an earlier thread that I just wanted to add something to, which um, uh, I think Jen brought up, which is has to do with um, how I understood it, Jen, which is how, it's, it's how I often think about it, which is that when we're, we're doing history, particularly within sort of more conservative academic context, people, ex there, there is really an assumption that if you're researching somebody of the past, the assumption is that the default person is going to be a cisgender heterosexual. And that if, 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 if you're assuming that they're anything but a cisgender or heterosexual person, then you, you need some really, really um, really, really sort of uh, high standards of evidence to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that that person um, is what you know in your heart and in, and, and, and in, in every way you know that based on, based on your intuition as a, as a person who lives in a, in a queer body, right? That, 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 that's what you're seeing in history, right? So it's sort of, it's, in a way it's advocating for our, our own intuitions As, as queer historians, when we see ourselves um, reflected, um, but it's also sort of pushing for this um, for this 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 default this, this default assumption that um, someone has to be straight and and cisgender uh, unless proven other unless proven otherwise beyond a shadow of a doubt. I, th I think I think that's it, it. Really hits on something that I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is the need to really problematize the idea of the normal 
when we look to the past, we tend to think that normal, be, that the idea of a norm is very stable and exists across time. But actually, if you start questioning the idea of what is normal, then you, I think you start to um, answer some of those issues, Channing, by saying, well, actually, if we question the whole idea <laughs> that, that norms are stable, then you actually get much more of a dance going on between queer and normal. And you're able to actually, I think, start to see the past in a different way and not necessarily assume that all married men or all married women were necessarily heterosexual because that was a term that didn't, not necessarily a term that meant anything or that wasn't the reason why people were getting married. Yes, I'm a specialist of the 18th century um, in Europe and Germany. And a man, without kissing in letters a thousand times another man, his very good friend, would not be have called normal, you know? <laughs> um, if you could recommend a book or a text or a film or a TV programme or any sort of cultural artefact that listeners should check out, um, what would you recommend? Um, I'll go first. I thought of two books that are two of my favorites. I teach them all the time. Um, and they're also really accessible. One is Transgender History by Susan Stryker. So it's just really an introductory overview of, you know, the transgender rights movement in contemporary U.S. society. And the other one is probably lesser known, um, but it's called Queer Injustice. And It was co-authored by historians and lawyers and activists. And I feel like what it does is it's a beautiful synthesis of queer history and experience in the U.S. in relation to the criminal justice system. And part of what that does is capture more a more diverse group of our community's experiences. But it also, for me, reminds students that up until very recently, being queer was criminalized. People were incarcerated for their love. And that it's actually just a very new phenomenon um, that homosexuality, it does not subject one um, to criminalization, right? Even in modern times. I had to, I had a couple. Um, I, I, love the, I love transgender. I love that Susan Stryker book as well. It's fantastic. Um, the, the first thing I was going to, recommend was It's a Sin, which is this series, Channel 4 series, that's just been screened and available online, which is about, the, um, it's a fiction, it's a, it's a five-part series about the AIDS crisis in Britain. Um, and what I think is so brilliant about it is it captures through film and fiction the emotional pulse of that moment you know it really took me back to the late 80s and early 90s and it made me think about how um, film and theater and literature can sometimes really capture imaginatively a historical moment in in a much more vivid way than than, than some of the that the, the the historical the standard history of the AIDS crisis for example so that would be my first recommendation I'd really recommend the bad gaze podcast it's fantastic by Ben Miller. Um, and the other absolute classic which I use in my teaching all the time is George Chauncey's Gay New York, um, which is, I mean, it's a fantastic read. And also, I think it really shows how context matters. You know, it's all about how queer lives are shaped by patterns of immigration and by class and by wealth and by the geography of New York. Um, 
and the and the and the peers and the docs and so on. And I think it's the kind of classic of of of, of kind of an integrated history. Um, and it's a great read as well. And the the sequels, yeah, coming up, I think, for the period from the 1950s, or we hope <laughs> it will. <laughs> so those are my three. <laughs> I would recommend going back to the sources. Let's read the poetry of Sappho. She is the first female voice in literature that we can grasp with a name. And she was talking about the love um, she gave her name to with the uh, sapphic and lesbian love. My other recommendation for sure is always Shakespeare, for example, The Twelfth Night. And then I would uh, like to highlight um, a German poet of the first half of the 19th century. Her name is Annette von Droste-Hülshoff. And in Germany, she's famous, but I think she's rarely translated because also, also in German, she's quite difficult. But um, she wrote wonderful love poems. And we know by uh, letters and sources that they were addressed to women. But in the uh, published version, she eliminated the sex and gender um, either of the talking I or the addressee. And by that, she um, transcended love, with um, made it free of all um, expectations and taboos and problems and wrote um, universal love poems. Um, it's very difficult for me to choose one thing. It, I, I'm sitting here sort of racking my brain, but I, but I did recently... Um, I did recently watch a very old um, documentary again that I think um, is worth a look uh, for people who are interested in um, sort of representation of queer people in film. Um, it's called The Cellular Closet. Um, it's uh, it was a documentary that aired on HBO I think in 1995. Um, it was based on it. a based on an earlier book by Vito Russo, um, and I think. Um, it does a great job of showcasing, you know, from the early Thomas Edison film, uh, showcasing two men uh, dancing together, um, you know, to the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, and which, you know, basically most of the 20th century um, represented, um, you know, with queer people being characters who were doomed or inevitably doomed, um, or uh, what could never be allowed any kind of happiness, or were or were comic characters uh, um, who were sort of um, sidekicks or or comic relief, um, and uh, this idea of of how for a long period of time queer people were looking, sort of reading between the lines, looking for representation of ourselves um, in Hollywood films. Um, through you know uh, identification with those comic relief and and doomed characters and um, the idea that now hopefully in the 21st century we can imagine ourselves as as um, as as lead actors and um, as, as in the center of the story I think it's so important for us to be in the center of the story at last. Thanks to our panelists for today's discussion, who were Matt Cook. Channing Gerard-Joseph, Jen Manian, and Angela Steidella. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. 
Join us tomorrow when I'll be speaking to Helen O'Hara about her book, Women vs. Hollywood. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.